It is uh, good to be with you. Stephen and Woody and I were able to go to a uh, conference in Southern California this week, and uh, what a blessing it was. And uh, we heard great preaching, and we got to have some great fellowship with some other uh, pastors and elders and, and others, and uh, the facility was, you know, passable too, I guess. When, uh, when Debbie Duarte saw where we, we were going, she said we were going to the spa. <laughs> Turns out we went to the spa, so... <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was, it was a beautiful facility. It was, an, it was a wonderful opportunity for us and encouraging. And uh, somehow Stephen and I worked it out so that Woody had to drive uh, both directions. So we napped and whatnot. And, well, I napped. Stephen didn't nap. He's a good companion. But uh, we had a great time. But it's good to be home. Uh, it's good to be back with you this week. And we will continue going through Romans chapter 5. And so if you uh, take your Bible... Turn to Romans 5. This morning's message is on verses 6 through 11, but in preparation for that, I want to go back and kind of build up speed again. Let's start from chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, these are great and deep and profound truths about our justification, about our reconciliation to you, about how we can rejoice in you instead of running from you as rebels. Father, as we come to your word this morning and we wrestle with these topics, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, take your word and minister to us. Each of us has our own needs. We see things differently, we hear things differently, we have different struggles and experiences in life, different trials. And so I pray this morning, Father, that you would take your word 
that you would work by your spirit to apply it to your people. And I pray even beyond that, that you would also take your word and draw to yourself those who are not yet your people. Father, we ask that you would bless our time, that you would be honored, that we would be built up. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage today, verses 6 through 11, deals with some, uh, pretty, some pretty bold claims. You read through there and you think about we who are weak and the fact that we rejoice in being justified and being reconciled to God and those sorts of things. How can Christians be so presumptuous? How can Christians think that uh, they've got the right track, that they have peace with God somehow? How can they be so presumptuous? Or maybe, maybe Christians are foolhardy to hope in some future deliverance, that God, that God is going to uh, deal with our sins in such a way that we ourselves will not answer for them and have to pay that penalty. How can Christians be so presumptuous? Well, our passage here today digs into that question. And we're going to spend just a few minutes talking about how it is that these things can be true. And Paul starts off talking about the reality of God's love. And it is some reality. Verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The reality of God's love shows us that Christ came for the helpless. First of all, he came for the helpless while we were weak at the right time. While we were still weak, we were, we were helpless. We were unable to save ourselves. We didn't have the strength. It was beyond our abilities. And the illustration is often used of, of a person standing on the, uh, on, the, on the shore, looking at the Pacific Ocean, standing uh, on the edge of California, looking out west and trying to leap to Hawaii, for example. Well, that's ridiculous. Uh, you know, I'm not all that great at geography, but it's probably not going to happen. We don't have the strength. Can't happen. You can leap a little ways and you're going to be wet very soon, right? But that's the illustration that's used, that, that, that we're too weak. We don't have the capacity and, and pleasing God, living up to God's standard is that hard. Like a person trying to leap from California to Hawaii. It's just too hard. In this passage here, Paul says that while we were weak, while we were incapable, while we were unable, we didn't have the strength to please God. We didn't have the strength to overcome the obstacles that were in our way. At that time, Christ came. But our situation is actually even more astounding than that. Christ didn't come for people who were merely helpless. He came for the sinful Paul says, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for whom? For the ungodly. 
for sinful people. The fact is far worse than us just being too weak to leap all the way to to Hawaii, though that is true. It's worse than that. Not only are we too weak, but we're marred by sin. We are sinful. We are ungodly. And so we need to go back and revisit our illustration of jumping from California to Hawaii, don't we? We need to edit it a little bit because the problem isn't just that we don't have the leg strength or the wings or the whatever it might be required to make that leap. The problem is not not only that we don't have the strength, it's worse. Any effort we might make at doing so is marred by our own sin. We're not just weak. We are sinful. In fact, to use Paul's language from back in chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, we wouldn't even seek to make the jump. We would turn aside from it before we even started. And so it's far worse than just us being unable to make that kind of jump. The fact is that we are sinful. We are rebellious ourselves. And we wouldn't want to make that jump. God's love for us is put on display in the fact that it was for people like these that Christ gave his life. The love of God is so different from any love that a a man could show. He says, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then he makes clear with his comparison. He says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. He says, when we think about the way we love, we might be willing to love someone, even sacrificially, even to the point of death, someone who loved us. And Jesus says in Luke chapter 6 that even sinners love those who love them. So, for example, I would be willing to lay down my life for my family. I would do that. I know they love me. That's pretty easy. I love them and they love me. But God's love is a very different kind of love than this this natural human kind of love. You see, we, we celebrate, and rightfully so, first responders, military, people who regularly lay down their lives for the good of other people. And we should celebrate that. I rejoice that there is that kind of love that people have. And Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And so we think about soldiers and others who have given their lives for the sake of their compatriots or for their country or, or for the good of other people. That's a, that's a wonderful thing that they've done. That is a very strong showing of love. But he goes beyond that here. We, we should write songs about them. We should write stories. We should celebrate these people, and we do. But he... The love that God shows here is far greater than that. For he says, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. While we were against him, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, people may be willing to give up their life for a good person or for a righteous person. But God shows his love for us, verse 8, in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The love of God is an amazing thing. The love of God has depths that we can't comprehend. It's profound that He would send His Son to die for people like us. 
Not, not just people who are too weak to make the jump, but people who are rebels in heart and wouldn't even want to make the jump. For those people, he sent his son. And we continue on, verses 9 and 10, where we read about resurrection and the wrath of God. Paul continues on, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. He begins by talking about those who have been justified. Those who have been justified. We've talked about this at some length because Paul has talked about it at some length. But the, the, the word justified, justification, is courtroom language. It's a, it's a legal case that has been brought. And, and this is the language that he's been developing all the way from the middle of chapter 3 until the present. He's been talking about justification and, and what it's like. How can a sinful person like me be declared righteous before God? You see, righteous, almighty, holy God created us. And since he's our creator, we owe him our obedience, but we've done the opposite. We as a people... And we individually have turned away and sinned against him, and thus we've incurred debt. And how can that debt be dealt with? Well, Paul has, Paul has taken great pains to explain to us about Christ being born as one of us and obeying where we've disobeyed and, and yet going to the cross to bear the wrath of God so that we don't have to, so that Jesus is a substitute for us. He has stood in our place, and thus by faith in him, when we put our trust in him, We are spared the wrath of God because it was poured out on Jesus. And we have the righteousness of Christ applied to us so that we can stand before God as righteous. And so, because of justification by faith, because of what Christ has done, God can look at a guilty sinner like me and see the righteousness of Christ in place. And so I can stand before God justified. And Paul has talked about this at length. And it's courtroom imagery and it's a powerful truth and it's it's a powerful doctrine and it's something that we need to understand and it would be worth contemplating more and more but he doesn't stop there he doesn't stop at that courtroom type language he also talks about us who have been reconciled Look back at verse 9 since therefore we have now been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son that's not courtroom imagery he has moved on from courtroom imagery which can seem cold and distant it can seem uh, philosophical and out there and he starts using relational language we understand about reconciliation Reconciliation is when there's been a a break in a relationship and reconciliation brings that relationship back together. Where there's unity, where there used to be division. Where the breach in the relationship has been healed. Where that break in the relationship has been overcome and the two have been brought back together. They've been reconciled to one another so that they are in fellowship. They are in harmony with one another again. That relationship has been restored. And so Paul doesn't only want us to think of the, the distant 
theological truths as if they took place in a sterile courtroom somewhere that we can't really relate to. He brings it right down to the personal. We have been reconciled to God. Our relationship has been healed. Think in your own life about relationships that have been strained. Maybe they've been broken. Maybe there's been a breach enter into your relationship for one reason or another. It might have been your fault. It might have been the other person's fault. It might have been just some weird circumstance that caused disunity, caused a break in that relationship, and you needed reconciliation. Well, that's very relational. There's nothing philosophical about that. That's not, that's not just pure theology that someone wrote about in a book somewhere. We understand reconciliation because we understand broken relationship because we have broken relationships. And so he talks about us and says, not only, not only have we been justified, but we've been reconciled. We, these are things that we have right now. These are things that are present right now. But he goes on to say that we will be saved from wrath. Look at those verses again. Since, therefore, we have now been justified, we have been justified. That's something that we now possess because of what happened in the past. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled. That's something in the past that was broken. It's been healed. It's a present reality. We have these two things present right now. We have justification. We have reconciliation with God. And what will we have? He says we will have, we will be saved from wrath. We will be saved. We have truths that are realities right now. And there's something in the future that we still await. I was a, uh, I love languages now. I love languages now. But when I was in high school, I did not love languages. English was an exception, Semi. So, yes, that's right. Foreign languages. I took French. I took four years of French. Spanish would have been entirely too helpful. I didn't want to go that route. I took French because, you know, I thought it was cool. And, uh, but I didn't learn a thing. All right. I have a very good ability to cram information. I can stuff information in this brain that will last about 24 hours and then it's gone. And so the result was four years of French. I got A's all along. I don't speak a word of French. I speak far more Spanish, and I've been, to, you know, I've been to Spain for one week and Mexico for two weeks, and my Spanish ability far outstrips my French ability. But because I was able to shove information, I was able to cram very well vocabulary. I could stick it in, and then it would evaporate after a while, but I had enough time to pass the test. Well, imagine, this did not happen, praise the Lord, but imagine if a French student like me, who was really good at cramming and never learned the language, imagine if the final is upcoming. My senior year, last day of school, final, and it's going to be a conversation in French. You can't cram a conversation. You, you, can't, you can't learn French fast enough to be able to prepare for a conversation given a, a week's time. But, but imagine that a final is upcoming and, and a student like me who knows no French has this final and hears that it's going to be oral. We're going to have to talk and have a conversation with my teacher. That's bad news, right? That's bad news. I'm glad this didn't happen. I'm so glad. But imagine that texting existed back in 1992 and it didn't. But imagine that I got a text like the day of the test saying, hey, uh, the final has been postponed until tomorrow. <laughs> right? I'm going to rejoice and I'm going to be super happy 
until I realize that tomorrow is still coming. The day of reckoning is still on its way, and I do not have enough time to cram the whole French language in my brain. Right? That would be a little bit what it would be like if we had reconciliation now, justification now, and yet judgment for our sin, condemnation still loomed. That would be awful. That would be awful that, yeah, I, I, I got a, a reprieve for, you know, a certain period of time from this test. I don't have to face it yet. But in the future, I will. In the future, I'll have to deal with my sin. And in, in the future, I will have to pay the penalty that I've incurred. The wrath of God righteously poured out upon me. That would be awful. But listen to what he says. Verse 10. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Or as he says in verse 9, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. He says, not only do you have justification, not only, Christian, do you have reconciliation with God, but because you have those things and guaranteed by the fact that you have those things, you will be saved by him from the wrath of God. There is no logical break in there. There's no disconnect. For the one who has justification, for the one who has been reconciled to God, he will be saved from the wrath of God. Which, by the way, argues strongly against the doctrine that we can lose our salvation. Argues strongly against the notion that a person can, can be reconciled to God. Can be justified before God. And yet somehow give that up. Whether through a severe enough sin or a loss of faith. What that would be saying is that a person can be justified, a person can be reconciled to God and face the wrath of God. And what did Paul say? What does Paul say in this verse about that? Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Those who have been justified by his blood will be saved by him from the wrath of God. There's a one-to-one correspondence. There is no break in the logic here. Paul's logic will not allow for someone to be justified and yet face the wrath of God for their own sin. The gospel won't allow for someone to be justified in Christ and yet somehow face the wrath of God for their own sin. The gospel says that our the wrath of God that we deserve because of our sin for the person who has been justified has been poured out on Christ himself and paid for. The person has been justified and will be saved by him from the wrath of God to come. And he continues, because that's not enough. As if that weren't enough, he continues in verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received 
reconciliation. He says, first of all, having received salvation in this language that he's using of justification, of reconciliation, of this courtroom picture of a person being justified before God because of what Christ has done and because of us being united to him by faith and thus righteousness is ours because Christ did righteousness and our penalty has been poured on Christ because he bore the wrath of God there. That justification is ours and that reconciliation, we have been reconciled to God by the death of his son. We've been brought back into fellowship with God by the death of his son, that salvation is something that we have. And he says, secondly, that salvation is through Christ alone. There is no other way. We've been reconciled to God by the death of his son. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's through Christ alone that those things are even possible. How can sinners like us be brought into relationship brought into right relationship with God. It's only through Christ. There is no other way. We don't stand on the, on the beach in California looking towards Hawaii and try our hardest and, and, and make it. That doesn't even happen. That's not even possible. But in Christ alone, Christ whose obedience was perfect and Christ whose death on the cross was fully atoning by means of that, Can we stand before God righteous in him? By that means alone can we have this salvation. And so the great hymn says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. My hope is in Christ alone. So we asked the question earlier, how, how do Christians dare to have a confident hope that they will be d- delivered by God? How can they be so bold? Well, because of the destiny-altering love that he has shown us in Christ who died for the weak and sinful and did so to reconcile us to God himself, did so to deliver us from the wrath of God. And so, Christian, that's how we can dare to hope because of his love demonstrated clearly for us in the life and death and resurrection of Christ. That's why we have that hope. And the result is that now we rejoice in God. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The goal of salvation is not just that we escape hell. It's not only that we escape judgment. It's not only that we would no longer bear the wrath of God, that we would no longer be sentenced to eternity in hell. The goal of salvation is that we be brought into right relationship with God. So the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with the question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That requires being united with Him. That requires rejoicing in Him. That involves us giving Him glory for what He has done for saving us in Christ. And so, true conversion is evidenced by more than just a person rejoicing that they escaped hell for all eternity. True conversion is evidenced by a person rejoicing to know and be known by God. 
rejoicing to be rightly related to God. It's evidenced by rejoicing in God and glorying in his presence. And so the psalmist can say in Psalm 16, if you don't know this verse, you should memorize it. Psalm 16, verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what it means to be rightly related to God. Not just having dodged a bullet, but being rightly related to our maker. Think of marriage for, for uh, a second. Marriage, marriage is a lot of things that we could talk about for a long time, but marriage is more than just no longer being single. As if my thought about marriage is, well, now I don't have to live alone anymore. Or uh, now at least I've got someone to make decisions with. Or I've got someone to blame when the checkbook runs empty. Or maybe, maybe I've got someone to relax with in the evenings. Those things are true, aren't they? Except for the whole checkbook thing, that would never happen to any of you. But marriage is so much more than that. And, and, and I'm not the smartest person. I'm certainly not the most romantic person. But even I know that if I were to talk that way about marriage, my wife would not feel overly honored. Well, here's, here's why I value our marriage. Because we get to sit down together at the end of the day. Because I'm no longer alone. I have someone to talk to. Those things are true and they're wonderful. But, but what is fabulous about marriage and, and what would be honoring to my wife is to rejoice that I'm married to my wife. Because I value her. I value that relationship. And a lot of negative things have been removed because we are together. But those aren't the things I focus on. Those aren't the things we write poetry about. For those of you who write poetry, which is not me. We rejoice in our relationship. We rejoice in our spouse. We rejoice in being rightly related to our spouse. We would never talk in terms like we often do about salvation. What does it mean to be saved? I'm headed to heaven instead of hell. I don't have to bear the wrath of God for my sin anymore. I don't have to live in darkness anymore. Those things are true. Those things are true, but if that's your testimony about what it means to be saved, you need to look at the flip side. You need to look at the side that Paul is talking about. All these things are true. Justification, reconciliation, and more than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Far from being enemies who have been spared the chopping block, Far from those who have just barely escaped. We have a relationship with God where we rejoice that we get to be in Him, that we get to know Him. We are saved for so much more than just escaping the negative. The Christian is saved for right relationship with God. And so the question for us this morning is, do you spend more time and energy and thought Celebrating your release from hell or your entrance into the presence of God? Do you rejoice more in what you've been saved from? Consequences for your sin, eternal punishment. Or in what you've been saved for? A right relationship with God. The believer has been freed from condemnation. And we should rejoice in that fact. 
those negative things have been removed. Those things have been dealt with. And we rejoice in those things. And that is not the heart of our rejoicing. The heart of our rejoicing is that we, rebels though we were, have been reconciled to God our Maker. We can call Him Father and we have that relationship with Him. That we know Him personally because He's made Himself known to us and He's made us acceptable to Himself in Christ. So we rejoice in God. We rejoice in God that we get to know Him. That we get to be His child. We get to be known by Him. He says more than that. More than just having been freed from the condemnation that we deserve because of our sin. More than just having been reconciled to Him as if we would be punished on the outside. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so church, let's rejoice in God. When you think about your salvation, when you think about Christ, which should be all the time, rejoice in God that you know Him, that He is your Father, that that you've been taken from a place of enmity with Him and you've been reconciled to a right relationship with the God with whom we were created to have intimacy. And He has brought you into that place of intimacy. So the result of salvation is not only that we escape hell, but it's that we get to be united with our Father. We get to know Him. And so that's the encouragement for us this morning that perhaps... Perhaps we've thought about what it means to be a Christian mostly in terms of what I've escaped from. Let's think about what we have been saved for. That we have such a relationship with Him that, that, that we're not like the disobedient kids that, that barely made it into the room, but we're just standing over in the corner lest, lest He uh, you know, gaze, gaze at us and find out that we've done wrong. We have been brought into the presence of God by the ministry of Christ. And we have peace with Him. And we rejoice in knowing God, our Savior. Let's pray. Father, what a blessing. What a blessing to know that not just legal requirements have been met, though they have been met. What a, what a blessing it is to know that not only have, have penalties been removed, penalties that we fully deserve because of our sin, because of our, our rebellion against you. Not only those things, not only have those negative things been removed. In Christ, they have been removed for the Christian. But in Christ, the Christian has communion with God. To such an extent that we can rejoice. Rejoice in you. Because we've been redeemed. And Father, we do rejoice. And I pray that as we go from this place and we go about our lives, as we interact with one another, as we have time alone, as we interact, interact with unbelievers around us, that we would think in those terms that we are those who get to rejoice in knowing God in truth. We don't have to hide in the corner ashamed and having barely escaped. We get to call you Father. Father, I pray that you would take this message of the gospel, that you would drive it home into the hearts of some this morning who don't know you, that you would 
Call them to yourself that they would bow the knee. That they would find peace with God in Jesus Christ. Do that this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name. Revelation 5 says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And we get to rejoice in that God. May God bless you. If you want to pray with someone, there will be a family up here to pray. Otherwise, you are dismissed.